Welcome to the Chicana Motherworks podcast. We hope you enjoyed our show. We are a collective of Chicana PhD mother scholars, artists, and activists. We created Chicana Motherwork to amplify the lived experiences of mothers of color within and outside academia. Together, as a Chicana Motherwork Collective, we theorize, write, organize, mother, and create spaces for communal healing and care out of our shared belief that the labor of mothering is a transformative act. Porque sin madres no hay revolución. Before we begin, we wanted to share that we experienced technical difficulties while recording this podcast, and we did the best that we could with our editing as we were not able to re-record. Despite this, we hope you enjoy the show. Hi, nice to meet you. Hi, hi. Hola. We're all barely getting up, getting uh, adjusted this morning. So, you know, we, we I like put my top on and then like my bottoms are still like sweats, you know? <laughs> my, well, I'm actually all sweats, but this morning was just crazy. Everyone woke up late and they were like, racing to get everyone to school and... My daughter, Carmen, she started kindergarten, and here it's only a half day, so you either have the morning part or the afternoon part, and she got the morning, so we have to get her to school by 8.25, and that's hard with a six-year-old. That's very hard. Well, yeah. we, uh, I barely got to brush my teeth this morning, but they're, <laughs> they're in, they're happy, and the shower will come later. Nice, nice. <laughs> Well, I'm Chateyes. Um, I tried to tweet at you, and I'm learning all of this stuff. So that was me. Nice to meet you. And I'm a professor at the University of Arizona. Oh, wonderful. Nice to meet you. And I'm Christine Vega. I'm a doctoral student at the School of Education um, at UCLA. I'm a sixth year. I'm dissertating. Um, I do research on mother scholars. So your piece was just blew my mind. Like four or five people sent it to me as soon as they came out. Oh, that's wonderful. Really happy to meet you, too. Nice to meet you. And uh, my name is Cecilia, and I'm a PhD candidate at USC here in LA. And and yeah, I also write on uh, Chicana mothering, but more so in um, like literature and cultural production. Okay. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So the way we do things is pretty informal, you know, so what we'll do is thank you for, for being here with us. No, I'm honored. We're ordering, we have merch, Chicana Motherwork merchandise, and as a thank you, we want to send you a little gift, and we're, oh. we're just reordering some stuff, and so at some point we'll follow up with your address and stuff, but, you know, we don't... Oh, exciting! Yeah, we just do stuff, all of this is, you know, volunteer, as you know, like, this is um, a passion project, uh, but also an important one, right? We're making, an, we feel like we're making an important intervention, in not oh, only yeah. in academia, but in other institutional spaces. And so, um, so thank you for your time, you know, but we do try to make them informal, you know, we have like kind of like a script that we follow very, you know, nothing difficult, no questions that are difficult, but just to try to have a conversation so that then our listeners um, can learn about your work and what you're doing. And we have listeners from, you know, I mean, we're small, but we're broad too. We have listeners here in the U.S. and Mexico and Europe and South America. So it's kind of think and great because it, I think people are seeing the need and wanting to hear these stories just like you know I'm sure that you felt so yes. what we'll do is we'll start with like a little I'll read your bio do a little intro are we recording yet Christine yeah we've been recording okay so then then we'll get started so okay. we don't take too much of your time let me just go to my script really quick oh uh, okay actually Christine's gonna be starting so go ahead Christine okay so, buenos dias, buenas tardes, hello to everyone. My name is Christine. We're back here with Chicana Motherwork. Um, we're doing a Zoom interview. Um, so, if you hear our um, acoustics or all of that, feel sound a little weird. We're recording literally on our computers from across the U.S. Um, or California. So, we're going to start this um, podcast as a, with, a, with a dedication. And we dedicate this work to the recent passing uh, and murder of a treasured indigenous grandmother, maestra, healer, and indigenous leader, Olivia Are- Arevalo Lomas, lideresa Shipipo Conimo de la Comunidad de, la comunidad de Victoria Gracia and Yorina Chococha, sorry, I chopped that up, um, Acayali, 
And so this indigenous elder was murdered a few days ago um, and she was a healer, a medicine woman. Um, a lot of the indigenous community across the globe and in the Americas are really hurt by her passing. Thank you, Christine, and, and thank you for, for recognizing her work. Um, so here we are, we're very excited to have uh, Dr. Rebecca Kalisi. Is that how you say your last name? That's right. It's like the Game of Thrones character, but spelled differently. see. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So your work resonates with us on so many levels. Uh, and I just want to tell our listeners a little bit about you. So Dr. Kalisi was awarded her MS from the University of Texas at Arlington in 2006, and then her PhD from UC Berkeley in 2010. As a postdoc, she was awarded an NSF postdoctoral fellowship from 2010 to 2013. She was then awarded a UC President's postdoctoral fellowship at the University of California, Berkeley until 2014. Uh, she was a faculty member in the biology department of Barnard College um, at Columbia University until 2015. And then at that point, she joined the faculty of UC Davis. She is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Neurobiology, Physiology, and Behavior. What a list of accomplishments. Um, so some of your recent work, uh, we want to talk about all of your work, but in terms of why we invited you here today was your article that was co-authored called How to Tackle the Child Care Conference Conundrum. It has been viewed over 55,000 times and downloaded up to 3,000 times. It's received major media attention, um, and it was also recently um, sent through the proceedings of the National Academy of Science, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you also wrote the special challenges of being both a scientist and a mom, which both of these will link to our social media so that our listeners can read them if they haven't had a chance to see them. And since I follow you on Twitter, I know you were recently at the Sacramento March for Science, um, where you said to support science, we must support the diverse needs of the people doing the science. Only then can we ensure the best tomorrow we can achieve. So hashtag science is for all, hashtag March for Science. Um, and you know, in your article, the tagline says, uh, the one that you solely authored, it says, I didn't really understand how unjust the academic system was for career advancement for women until I had children. And I'm sure that's something that resonates with many of us, right? Um, so thinking about all that work, let's start with just something simple. You know, tell us about yourself. How did you become a Chicana scientist? Uh, where did you grow up? And then, and then we can continue the conversation. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I was so excited to learn about uh, your passion project and um, I'm excited to share it more and talk about it more with my students in my community. Right. Um, uh, so um, I grew up in Texas. Uh, my mother is Dolores Rodriguez, and that's where I get my second surname. So it's Khaleesi Rodriguez. Um, I, uh, so she, I grew up mostly in Dallas, but my mother's from uh, a border town called Rio Grande City. And that is where I spent all my winters, my summers, my breaks there uh, with all my cousins, have a lot of cousins, my tios. Um, we had a cattle ranch when I was young, you know, growing up there on the ranch. So I really consider that a big part of my home and my heart, so much so that I named my son Rio after Rio Grande City. And people always say, Rio de Janeiro? And no, no, <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not correct. But um, yeah, so that's where I grew up. But when I went to college, I wanted to be an artist. I had done a lot of art um, in high school and even had an art show and had my pieces shown, you know, in youth events at museums. And I just, I, I love doing art. So I, I originally started off my career at Skidmore College, where they have an amazing art and theater program. So I went into art and theater, and uh, for, for reasons that actually dealt with falling in love, I fell in love with this great guy. We're still friends, but he's not my husband, but we're still friends. This great guy, and he actually transferred to Boston College, and uh, I was led by my heart and went 
there, but <laughs> I didn't, didn't end up pursuing the arts there. I, I switched to psychology. Um, they had a, a really good program in psychology, and it was just, it was just interesting. It was for fun, but it wasn't really biopsych. It was, it was psych, psych, um, cultural psychology. So I really didn't have any science, you know, puro experience until, uh, until my mid-20s. Wow. Um, what I ended up doing is when I graduated, I went back home to Texas and uh, I ended up um, being a substitute teacher in for the Dallas public school system um, for a year. And the following year, this is kind of a, is this, am I talking too much? It's kind of like a long story to get, just to really shorten it up. And I think it's important for, for, for people to hear that not all paths are the same, right? This was a very non-traditional path to science. Um, and what ended up happening is after a year of uh, being an elementary school teacher, there was a job posting at the Dallas Zoo for someone to come develop curriculum and teach K through 12 programs. And I, you know, I was surrounded by nature growing up and I thought, oh my gosh, could there be a cooler job? So I took this job at the zoo and while I was there, they found out that I like to do art and they commissioned me to paint this huge mural for their Wilds of Africa schoolhouse. So that took me quite some time. And while I was there, I got to interact a lot with the biologists. And that's where I started to see how cool it was to be a biologist and to discover new things and, and ask questions. Um, it was just really exciting. So I wanted to know more. I went to the local university, the University of Texas at Arlington, to get some more experience. I ended up getting a master's. And then that led to basically a full ride for a PhD program at UC Berkeley. And here I am. So that's kind of my story. That's amazing. And then and you stayed. I mean, that's, you know, really amazing. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, sure. Oh, so yeah, thank you for sharing your story. I um I sometimes question like why I went into it and I and I have certain reasons why and um but I think part of it that you what your story resonates is with me and probably even with Ceci that we're both artists too and I wanted to pursue art when I was in high school. Um I know. <laughs> and so I do a lot of the artwork for our graphic design for our collective and that's the way I can like pull out some of my art energy into it. So they give me uh, my artistic freedom to just do, do with um, the work here in Chicana sure. work. But um, I also resonate with science. I'm like, I, w I wish I would have, you know, fallen into um, science a little bit more because I'm so curious about it. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful, hopefully up raising my son to, to be curious and interested in art and science, dance, and all the different part, you know, different kinds of disciplines. But um, my current work, because of my own pregnancy and, and, it, and what your quote from above when you say that you didn't know um, or didn't understand how unjust academia was until you became a parent resonates with my, with my, my own story. And a lot of us here at Chicana Mother Work and even our, our audience um, led me to, leads me to think about um, my current dissertation research. And, and I look at the attrition and retention of first generation Chicana Latina mothers in doctoral programs. Um, and mm -hmm. there's a study out there, and I don't know, uh, who actually is a professor at Berkeley, uh, Mary Mason. Um, oh yeah, sure, of course. Yeah, okay. Rock star. Yes, so Mary mm -hmm. Mason's um, study on the baby matter was really eye-opening for me. Um, yeah. And so my question for you um, is, you know, does you recognize that the work that Mary Mason did, did with other colleagues, um, where she makes it clear that gender and parenting, parenting push women of color and women out of sciences even before completing their degrees. Um, I guess my question is coming into the sciences as a woman of color or even a girl, can you talk to us about those experiences growing up? Um, but it sounds like you kind of answered that in your in your in your little in, in the trajectory of your work. But maybe some of those experiences when you were getting your degrees in science as a woman of color, and then when you became a parent. 
Sure. Well, I want to say, state first that, you know, even though I'm an I'm a Italian, Mexican, American, but I grew up with uh, the Mexican side. So I very much identify as Chicana. Um, but I am not, uh, when people look at me who don't know me, they don't automatically think, you know, she's Mexican American. You know, I have very fair skin. Um, I have, if I ever have an accent, it's more of a Texas accent. Uh, so I have to say that I'm very privileged in, in that way. Then, and I recognize that I have white privilege, um, which is good and bad. It's, it's good because, um, you know, it's privilege, right? And it allows me, it helps me. It absolutely helps me get farther, I feel, because I don't experience that bias that so many people of color experience. Um, but it also, sometimes I've been part of conversations or I have overheard conversations that are quite, you know, um, racist. And it's because people sometimes think it's okay to talk like that because they didn't see me or think of me as an other, right? So, uh, you know, racism is still rampant and bias is still rampant out there. And um, yeah, it's sad, but at the same time, I feel like I'm at a position now uh, where I can do something about it and really help to be part of the change. But to talk about your comment about um, how I previously stated in one of my works that I didn't realize how unjust the system was for advancement. And I talk about academia because that's my world, but it really is you know, for working mothers um, in general until I became a mother. And I am where I am today. There are many times when I wanted to leave and actively look for, for other positions. But I, I probably would have left if it had not been for my mentors. My, my supportive mentors, and I can't, oh, it's, uh, for, for my fellow you know, sisters out there that don't have the support that I had, and it was hard enough for me with incredibly supportive mentors. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom with going on as a mother without that support, and that's terrible. That's terrible. So I, um, it was hard because as you, as you know, as mothers, being pregnant, isn't you know a cakewalk uh, and, and then giving birth obviously isn't either healing from that and then dealing with the you know uh, with your own feelings of wanting to be there for your children and bond with them and see them grow with also wanting to pursue you know your own career that your for me my children are my heart they mean they mean everything to me, but they are not, being a mother is not the only thing that, that I define myself as. So, you know, you have this constant psychological battle, I feel, going on between wanting to be, to pursue your career and be the best that you can be, uh, and also be the best mother you can be and partner that you can be. And it's, it's enough for, you know, five people to take on. <laughs> so it really does a psychological, you know, number on so many of us and it's exhausting and we, so, uh, we suffer from burnout, you know, we suffer from depression, we suffer from all these things because society hasn't truly figured out how to support working mothers. Right, no, that's so true and you know, I um, was thinking, I, so I wrote a paper, um, and well it was published it was kind of like something that i had written from my heart and my gut and like my tears and pain um when i first became a mom because i became a mom my first year as an assistant professor in february of that first year on the tenure track and um, i was a single mom and i had moved to a new state and i had moved to a new city so i was basically like by myself and um and i didn't get maternity leave right and so i started you know writing um and it took several years for that piece to finally, you know, come out. Um, so my piece, Lectures, Evaluations, and Diapers, Navigating the Trains of Chicago Single Motherhood in the Academy, was finally published in 2013, not because, just because I hadn't submitted it yet. I wasn't ready to tell my story. I wasn't ready to, but you know that, like, all those initial feelings and pain and, like, just being really, you know, because I felt like, oh, you know, here I was, an upcoming Chicana scholar, 
And then like everybody was disappointed because now I was a Chicana mother, you know? And so I wanted to change that framing and say, hell yeah, I'm a mother and I'm a scholar. And I do this work not just for career advancement, right? It's because we're passionate about it. We care about the work we want, we're doing, right? And I think that's oh. the difference. That, and then that article, you know, I was lucky because then, you know, Cecilia and Yvette, another one of our members, um, who's not here with us today, uh, reached out to me. And that's when we started, you know, really thinking about the collaboration. And from that, you know, this collective was born, you know, and it had it not been for us putting our voices out there. And, you know, and I'm sure it comes with critique and, and you know, pushback. But, you know, I think I can speak for myself and I'll let others, you know, tell their own stories is that had it not been for this collective, I would not have survived, right? I mean, I got denied tenure at my first university and I had to start all over again, given, you know, so, you know, and if it hadn't been for this collective, I think that it would not have, I wouldn't still be here. I'm glad that you are. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I was, I was going to say, it's so true that community makes such a huge difference. Um, you know, this was what was one of the things that was really powerful about writing this paper, the paper for PNAS for the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, that has a bit of an unfortunate acronym sound. But um, <laughs> uh, what... So I had always, I tried to seek out, well, I had these incredible mentors. They were mostly male, but they were uh, my PhD advisor, my postdoc advisors, uh, just to name them because they deserve to be named. So that's George Bentley was at Berkeley, and then Tim Gentner and John Wingfield were at UC San Diego and UC um, Davis. And they really said, you take whatever time you do whatever you need we will support you uh, in this endeavor and that was that was gold as i said and then um it was brie rosenblum another another postdoc advisor who was at, at berkeley a very successful woman in science but also a huge realist with my kids come first and you know this is how it is and i always thought um i should wear like a little bracelet that said what would brie do <laughs> you know she was really um just a sense of uh she gave me the sense of power and agency to do what i felt was best for myself and my family so i'm really thankful to these mentors but when i would talk to different women you know at conferences that's where we really convene right uh, when i see all these other women in science and we talk about being you know young mothers these are all kind of my cohort of scientists coming up so we're all you know having our babies um or they're not that old right now i would hear that everybody was struggling in different ways and had to push it under the rug because you know we're we're super women. We have to show that we can be moms, but then also you know not miss a beat. That we that we are you know that's the feeling that I think we have pressure right now to really perform to show that women you know we we get it. But it's, it's really destructive, too, because we're supposed to, when we're going through these enormous physical and physiological emotional changes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just not, it's not logical. That doesn't make sense. And I'm not saying that lesser during this time, but I... We all have that might need different things to continue in a healthy way. And we should be able to ask for those things. Or we should be able to at least have a conversation about if those things can't be had, um, if we can't acquire those things, how we can change our workload or expectations so that we don't drive ourselves mad and leave. And I think that's a conversation that isn't really happening, you know, honestly. So. That, that was uh, the reason why I felt empowered to really speak out. And this isn't just about my experience. You know, I, I, this is about a collective experience in a way. Um, I think I was just done. I just, I'm just, I'm just done. I have two children right now and they take up a lot of time and effort and I, I want to be with them. And I'm, 
I'm at the point where I, if that means having to leave science, if that means having to leave my job, we are, we're fortunate right now to be financially secure with my husband's job, that I am privileged to be able to do that. And I really just, I don't care anymore. So I'm going to, that has made me brave. <laughs> think of it, I'm sure that will be criticized in many ways, but I'm too tired to think about it. I'm just being completely open and honest about my needs as a woman, about the needs of the women that I've spoken to uh, around this time. Because we, you know, you hear all these things about we need to inspire women to stay in the sciences. We need to inspire women to pursue the sciences. And, and I think we're here. Yeah. We're here. We're ready. But how can we when we're so much more is expected of us while we're given fewer resources and less, you know, credit for the things that we do? It is not a fair system. Now, it's changing. I don't want to discourage any mothers from pursuing the sciences or pursuing academia. It's not an, solely an academic problem. I talk to my, my sisters in business, my sisters in law, in many other, in entertainment, and the stories I hear are just, they horrify me. No. So it's not just science. And young people out there should know, young women should know the culture is changing more in some places than others, but it is changing. And I'm not going to be quiet anymore. I'm, I'm going to speak up for them. I'm here for them. And I just want to add another point to this is that one of the reasons I was so excited to take this position at UC Davis, I had, I had a position before this and I, I liked it very much. And there are many reasons why we came here, but one of the reasons I, that truly wants to support diversity, not just recruit diversity, but support it and has many programs to do so and has one of the, the top ranked programs of supporting women in science. So even though I'm not yet tenured, I feel, I feel supported by my university to speak out about these things because they have my back. And that makes a big difference what kind of culture that we're in as well. So I had supportive mentors and now I'm in a supportive academic environment. That's, I'm pretty darn lucky. Yeah, no, that's huge. Support is fundamental, right? I mean, at all stages. So whether or not, because oftentimes like the, the popular notion is we just need to lean in and work harder, right? And we need to push back against that, right? <laughs> It's about the support. It's about the networks, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get it. And I, and I, you know, I read Lean In and I, when I read it, I felt very, I was very excited by it. I was really empowered by it. It, felt, it met with my personality of, yeah, I'm going to speak up. I'm going to, you know, just go for it. But I don't think that that is the right way that we should expect everyone to act. I think to be able to lean in, you have to have a lot of privilege. And I am privileged by the color of my skin. I am privileged by the mentors that I've had. And I'm privileged by the university, um, you know, that I'm at right now. So I'm going to lean in. But that is not how we should expect everyone to, to act. We need to be able to, to you know, create an inclusive environment for, for the, you know, the, all the different kinds of decisions and ways people choose to, to lead their lives and you know, speak and advocate when they want, how they want. Yeah, and just to add to that, just thank you for your work, because I think from the perspective of um, a graduate student, or as me and Christina are current PhD candidates, um, and in academia, there are so many um, power dynamics that as a graduate student, um, we have um, a lot less power or privilege to speak out about that. And I think what you're doing is very inspiring because you're showing not only um, other uh, Chicanos or uh, women of color on the tenure track, but you're also showing us as grad, uh, grad students and undergraduate students, because I was also an undergraduate mom when I had my son, um, that it is possible there might be and we have felt um, different uh, ramifications in many ways or one example like Michelle being denied tenure but we're still going we're still here and um, I think for us it's like the it's worth the risk to have that kind of collective change at um, different institutions because it shouldn't be this way and we're often um, shamed or judged 
for even um, speaking out about basic needs, <laughs> like things that all parents should have. Yeah, but then, I yeah. So, so again, just just thank you for um, how you're taking this very public role because it is very, it's just absolutely inspiring. So, thank you for um, the hard work that you're doing. Oh, that's very kind. Well, I'm thank you for the work that you're doing with this because this this type of work right now. Uh, you know, what your organization, and then just speaking out, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of emotional labor. Um, and, you know, we don't really get credit for that as when we seek career advancement. I mean, again, UC Davis does actually give us credit, but <laughs> um, in general, academia doesn't really reward these kind of efforts. And that is something that needs to change as well so um yeah i just i just hope to be part of the change and i want people to know too that even though i have been speaking out there definitely has been some pushback by certain people or you know a few trolls here and there on social media but you know you can't please anybody and if you piss off some people i always figure then you're doing something right so <laughs> what i've been inspired by is all the emails I've received, and I haven't, I, I can't, I don't have time to answer them all, but easily, like now it's in the hundreds of emails I've received from mothers saying, oh my gosh, this is my experience. I, I thought I was alone. And they write me an essay of what they've experienced and their hardships. And you know, I wrote a bit about mine in, in Science Magazine and then Scientific American. And I think you know, this was very, it, it was very hard for me. And I look at these experiences of women and they just have endured so much more, so many more hardships. And they're still going because we are fierce. You know, we are, we are fierce. We, this, is a, this is a hard time and a great time for this movement, for women to, demand our needs and really bring light to the social injustice that we experience because you know what society needs us they need our perspectives they need our experiences to really fuel the way we attack problems and we solve problems and we teach our students we can't achieve our full potential unless we have diverse perspectives so it is at everyone's benefit that diverse needs be met. Absolutely. And is there anything like, what do you think was like the one thing that set you off that you're like, okay, I'm done. Because I've, I've been hearing that you're like, I'm done. I'm, you know, and, and I know like what mine was, you know, but then also you have 45 other women that you collaborated with. Like what, what, you know, how did you all yeah. come together? What was there? Like, all right, we're done. We're doing this, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's actually, it's, that in itself is really beautiful. So to answer the first one, when was I done? I mean, I was already speaking out a bit throughout this process. And even before I had children, I was a big advocate for women in science, you know, at the level of being a graduate student beginning as a postdoc. But I really just decided to go for it. It was a combination of being at UC Davis that, that really values this kind of work. But also, after I had my second child, Oh my gosh, <laughs> it was just too much. I was new on the tenure track. Uh, you know, I had my first year at UC Davis. And even though I mentioned that this is an institution that compared to all others is one of the most supportive ones I've heard about, it still was just the pressures of the field in general were just too much to, to deal with it. And I was back, I was back on email, you know, in the hospital after, after giving birth. And I hate that. I hate that I felt that I had to do that. So, so many people, older, you know, people have said, well, that's, you know, they, they're so, they're honestly very wise, uh, you know, having spent all these years, um, you know, experiencing having children and seeing their people have children. They said, why did you do that? You know, in the whole scheme of things, this is really a short amount of time, but it doesn't feel like that when you're in it. Right. You no, know? it doesn't feel like that. And you know, as a woman alone in science, how hard it is to make it in an environment that's already super competitive. So you want to give yourself every opportunity to find that security 
and that job you want and that place you want. So taking a step back felt, it just felt like I couldn't. And now I'm, I'm one of those women saying, yes, you can take that step back. I wish I could go back in time to myself a year and a half ago when I had my son. Be like, Becca, chill out. It's going to be okay. But when you're in the moment, it, that's just you know, easier said than done. So what really set me off is after I had my second son, Rio, I had experienced postpartum depression with both of my children. I bounced back from it a lot more quickly with my first one. I think because I didn't have as many expectations on me. It was just one child to deal with. You know, I was living in San Diego. It was beautiful, <laughs> the beach. But um, it was it was with my second son, and I've only recently really come out to talk about it because you know you're not allowed to you're not allowed to be depressed. You're not allowed to need any kind of mental you know help or strength. It, it's seen as a weakness. It's seen as something taboo, and I call BS on that. I, so many mothers, we've, we've held each other up through, from baby blues to you know, major postpartum depression. And this is something, when we talk about PPD, this is something not you know, just like, I feel sad. I am not bonding you know, with my child. This is a sad time. For some people, it can be life-threatening. You know, there are women that take their own lives, or that are, I shouldn't say that, that's not correct. There are women that are, are you know, deaths are caused by, you know, suicide kind of thing. Yeah. Um, a victim of that because of this combination of pressures and then crazy physiological changes. Um, not everybody, but some women. And I just want other women to know they're not alone because it's a lonely time. You're supposed to be happy when you have a baby. I have a... I have a great job. I'm living in a great place. I have an amazing husband and two healthy children. I'm super privileged in so many ways. What right do I have to feel depressed in any way? That's what I feel like. And that's the experience of so many women that have postpartum depression. So really, after I started to come out, of having PPD, you know, and I, I, I sought help with the help of my husband and community help. I just thought it was such a dark time for me. I thought that's it, that's it. And I don't want my daughter to have to go through these dark times. So I'm going to, it, it was almost therapeutic to just say, I'm coming out, I'm telling women they're not alone. This is what I can do right now. I don't think it's actually enough but it's what I can do. So that's what, that's what triggered me. And who knows what the future holds. I have lots of other ideas and projects and plans. And UC Davis is really working with me to help me see a lot of them through. Uh, what was your second question? No, I thank forgot. you for sharing that. that. That's a really powerful testimonial that you're sharing with us and our listeners. We want to acknowledge that, you know, and we, we oftentimes just move through it because that's what we're taught. Again, it's the whole idea of leaning in and, oh, my God, and it's horrible. And let me just move through it. And then and then the consequences of that, you know, um, are felt in our bodies and in our experiences and our brain and even how we interact with our children when we hold it all in, you know. So it's super impactful and it's very important that you're sharing that with us. Um, well, and the second part to that was just about thinking about the other women that you're writing with, right? And um, and then how that that all came together. So what happened is uh, I started off with a group of women that were, you know, I had done postdoc with, I, I knew really well, or were in my my immediate community who I had really confided my um, problems to, and a lot of them had confided their own. So I've, you know, that that bonded us. So. I was finally back at a conference. My children were home with my husband, who was now watching them in association with daycare, great daycare we could actually afford now that we're faculty. And uh, it felt, I of course missed my children, missed my husband. At the same time, it felt like, it felt great. You know, I, I remember this moment of just leaning back on a, on a wall that was warm by the sun from the light streaming in and drinking my hot tea because it's so rare you get a hot meal right or a hot coffee or a hot tea when you have children running around and just loving scrolling through the program um, the scientific program on my phone and feeling that feeling again when I went to conference like a kid in a candy store what am I going to go see who am I going to talk with what discoveries have you know have I missed in the last so many months that I've been 
and kind of MIA. Um, so it was a great feeling. But something I, I started to do is kind of a weird fast. I don't know if it's weird, but I thought it was kind of a weird fascination. But you know, that's me. I always was interested in checking out lactation facilities. Whether it be, you know, whether it be, because when I needed them, you know, when I'm pumping breast milk in a bathroom, I start to think about, hmm, could this be easier? And at that particular conference where I was pumping in a bathroom, there wasn't anything really that was, that I could, you know, use unless I wanted to pump in front of everybody. And well, I'm not, you know, I was never shy to breastfeed in front of people. There's something about, I don't know, being hooked up to a milk machine that I felt a little a little bit weird about being in the public, you know, doing that. And I think if a woman could do that right on, you go girl. For me, I guess it was a little more of a private experience of being hooked up to a, a milk machine. But uh, I, ever since that point, I started to notice lactation rooms. And I felt like you could really learn a lot or it represented how the organization maybe valued women or, or at least mothers in science with, um, with biological needs. So that's just a fascination I started to have. So at this one particular conference I was at, it was thousands of people, one of the biggest conferences in, in, in my field. Um, and I wanted to check out the lactation room. And when I got out, it was, it, uh, there was a lactation room, great. You know, it had supplies in it to help you, like power outlets, you know, um, a cur there were three pop-up tents. Great. That's awesome. But at the same time, I, they were pretty meager accommodations. So it was this feeling first of, should we be thankful for what they've provided or should, you know, can't, should we demand more? And I actually started to get really angry by the way I was thinking about this because it's like saying, should we be thankful that we're allowed to, to work you know, in academia, and yet not be upset that our paychecks on average are, are less than our male counterparts, right? And that's a, that's a known statistical fact. Uh, and no, no, you know, we are allowed to ask for, for what we need, to ask for it all. Um, and these were our biological needs, and I just thought that they were not being met. So I called up the society and said, you know, we, we, I took pictures of the paltry offerings and basically called them out without caring anymore about career retribution. And I did so respectfully, you know, as respectful as, you know, a heated Chicana can do, okay? So I did, it, I did it as diplomatically as I could. Then all of a sudden, all these people started replying to me and saying, uh, you know, uh, the, all of them saying, oh my gosh, yeah, I went in there and decided not to breastfeed in there. It was just, you know, I have a small child. What are they going to play with the electrical cords? And, and, um, and we demanded more. So immediately the society actually responded. And again, this is thousands, thousands of people. And this is a conference too, where there are actual presentations about the importance of maternal care. And actually lactation, all of that stuff, but you know, yet we didn't have exactly what we needed. So I ended up telling, I, I thought this, I thought I was going to get in trouble because that's usually, I feel like you're always on the defensive as a woman, as an underrep minority. When you, when you speak, you're always on the defensive. Someone's always going to be pissed at you. So I thought the society was going to give me a talking to like, you should have done, you should just come straight to us instead of going to social media, blah, blah, blah. But they didn't. To their credit, they said, oh man, you know, what can we do to make this right? So uh, it surprised me, but I, I said, you know, right then you bring in more comfortable chairs and, you know, to wrangle those, those uh, electrical cords and so on. And they did it within the hour. They did it. And then it occurred to me that it's not necessarily that all of these organizations want to keep out women or not care about our needs or, you know, that they just don't know how to help us. I mean, that's a really positive way to look at it. Maybe they just don't want to have any kind of negative attention too. But I'm going to go with the positive because I really felt like they wanted to support our needs for this particular conference. And a lot of other conference organizers I've spoken with since. But they didn't know how. So they said, what can you advise us on how? For example, before you set up a lactation, uh, they're, lact they're professional lactation consultants. You know, these are things that, oh, oh yeah, that makes sense. But then I, turn, I start to turn it into a paper because I thought I wanted this 
to be out there for all conferences. Um, why not publish it in a blog or something? And then I thought, after I'd finished it, being sent, you know, as someone, as a Chicana, as, as a woman, I know the importance and the power of diversity of perspectives. And I thought, this is just my perspective. Um, let me bring on a few other women from, from different kind of walks of life and see if they have the same perspective or want to add anything or change anything, bring them on as authors. So I threw up, I threw, I threw up a Google spread, I don't know, how do you say it, the, onto the cloud, a shared Google document. Uh, so they could work on it in real time and I can see, you know, what they're doing in real time and they could use the track changes and everything. And um, as they started to do that, all of a sudden I just, I got excited about the possibilities and I started to email a bunch of women that I, that I knew who had talked to me about, you know, that basically had inspired a lot of the things I was saying. And I said, check out this document. I'd love to have your input. And then they had a few friends that were in the same predicament. So it grew to 45 women in science, mothers in science, plus me. So that makes 46. And of course, there could have been so many more. But let me just tell you, that's all I could handle <laughs> with the comments. But here's the beautiful part about it. Now, when you work on a paper, generally, you know, the things could go wonderfully. And they have with me and collaborators. I have amazing collaborators. But many times you disagree on things. You might have little spats over this or that and differences in opinion. But with 46 authors working on this, I was, you know, I was, I was really intimidated. But we, there were, there were no differences in opinion. There were no, there was no hostility. There was no, it was beautiful. Everyone came together, and if someone thought something should be worded differently or included or not included, the way everyone spoke to each other and interacted with each other was just inspiring. This, within 48 hours, all these women just jumped on this invitation and said, yeah, this is great, let's do it, and just went at it. And they're, you know, or, or we spoke and they gave me ideas for it. So everyone on that list contributed to the ideas and or the writing significantly. It was just beautiful to see this group of women that was, you know, a quarter of us were underrepresented minorities. And we spanned the, the experience from postdoc through National Academy of Science member. Now, looking back, I wish I had gotten undergraduate, graduate student, but these were really women that I, that I knew personally and that had children. So my, my PhD students, they don't have children yet. Um, so they, they were just, you know, trusted confidence, confidence in this. And it, it was great to have all these perspectives. And we were really proud of what came out of it. We were very sure about the solutions that we offered. So we all talk about the problems, and, it, and of course we have to talk about the problem because we don't know how to fix it unless we know the problems. But here we are offering solutions. And yes, we use conferences basically as our arena to talk about because it's you know, on, a, on a micro scale. But really, these were solutions to how to make the culture of academia more inclusive and actually the culture of general working environment for women beyond academia more inclusive and supportive and why that's important to progress. So we're all very excited by this, but if you wouldn't believe the trouble I had getting it published, I submitted, yeah, I thought, wow, we really did something important here. And, you know, I had, I had, like I mentioned, National Academy of Science members on this piece. I had these people that were incredibly well-respected and these amazing editors of major journals. Um, so we were sure about the writing, about the message. This was 46 brilliant women came together to create this piece. But I couldn't get it published. And I was getting, and I was submitting to the top journals because um, I thought that it would be seen by the people that, and respected more by the people who really needed to see it and respect it. Um, isn't that, I, that's kind of, that's its own topic, all right? <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with that, but it was what I thought would be the best way to get this seen by, you know, heads of societies. And uh, I got canned responses. No, this isn't a good fit. 
uh, you know, this isn't of interest to us. And I thought, what? <sighs> and then finally, I went again. Social media is is awful in some ways, but really great in other ways for bringing support, for bringing community members together, for using it as a megaphone for for promoting social justice. So I went to social media and kind of told the community what was going on. We had made, I didn't really call out any journals, but we had made this great piece, all these women, diverse group of women, and we couldn't get it published. Huge response then by social media. Um, and everyone was tagging editors of different journals saying, are you kidding me? Look at this piece. So I sent it again. And then I got all these comments about, well, we could publish it, but only, you know, something really short. So you need to cut it down to, you know, I don't know, 800 words or 500 words. And I thought that totally defeats the purpose of where we offer all the different solutions. I, I then got a lot about a lot of questions about what about men? Why don't you why don't you talk about men? Why don't you talk about dads? Why aren't there any male authors on this? I don't know if there's ever been a piece where someone said, why aren't there any females author? I mean, I, yes, there has been, but you know, it, it, <laughs> it gets called out perhaps a little bit more if it's just all female authors. But here's the thing, I get it. My husband, he's, he's a professor as well. And he has taken so much time for art. He's taken, he, he is an amazing father and an amazing partner. And I'd say he, contributes way more than most to, to, we really half it. And oftentimes he takes on more than the lion's share because he'll see me struggling or see the, the differences in, in the resources we get and so on. So believe me, this wasn't a, a hit at men, my male mentors, my husband, all these other wonderful men in, in science, my chair, you know, Great, but guess what? I wanted to talk about the woman's experience. I want to talk about the, the female perspective in this, about our experience, our feeling, and nothing personal, guys. There's no, you know, man-hater language in there. You know, we're not calling you out. This is about our experience, particularly about the early time of being pregnant, giving birth and healing, and breastfeeding. We're focusing on these early events. Parents experience so many more challenges, you know, as the kids get older. It's, it's, a, it's a moving target, right? But this is, this is what we're talking about right now and what causes a lot of leakage, I guess, in the pipeline. I don't know if that's a good term to use, you know, but a lot of people to either pushed out or to choose to leave at that time when the kids are really young. So that's what we focused on. And I think, I think a true how it's felt to me is that a true male ally is one that will give us that space to talk about our experience. One that will help to amplify our voice, not criticize us for not including the dad's perspective. You know what? When, when men can go through the throes of pregnancy and be ripped open, you know, during birth and then have to you know, be exhausted by producing, you know, milk constantly off their own body's resources, uh, you know, then, and then on top of all that, but get paid less on average than their, their, you know, than their female counterparts, then yes, I will spend time talking about the, the, you know, about the man's experience, about the young dad's experience. But right now I'm talking about women's experience because we are the ones that are uh, having more obstacles and bias yes. at this particular life stage. Fire right there. And that's, that's what I'm talking right. about. We have to keep amplifying this, this, this experience and this voice. And we're so thankful for that. Now, I know we're, we're almost out of time here and I wanted to see what Ceci and Christine wanted to end with before, you know, we let you go back to all the things that you're, you're doing. <laughs> and just thank you again for your time. Ceci, Christine. I'll, I'll pass it on to Ceci. Um, I think Ceci and I have similar questions in terms of um, Chicana women in science and tenure track. Oh, and then I just want to say for the, so we have the forthcoming Chicana Motherwork Anthology and it's all women identified people. <laughs> 
So no, that's really important. You know, that's something I didn't touch upon here. These, these policies that we discuss and in our paper, we talk about being, you know, gender inclusive. So I'm using the terms here. I'm using the sex terms, male and female. But again, we need to support the diverse needs of, of the people. So, <clears throat> yeah, I hope you would forgive me for not talking about gender and gender specific roles. Right now I'm talking about, I guess, biological sex. And I'm sorry for that, but oh. we should definitely, yeah, we should definitely um, be aware that there are there are many different uh, levels and different aspects that span that span um, many different people that identify in various ways. So oh. thank you for reminding me to state that because that's really important. Oh yeah, and then I think it was just to add to like I can't believe that you got criticized for not including the like I, I so that's why so that's why I said oh our anthology it's all women identified so it's just that that criticism had like never even entered my mind <laughs> but just that just that you got it for the collective publication it's just like again like fighting um you know like heteropatriarchy or uh these gendered norms it's just and how you said it wasn't an attack on men, but it's interpreted in that way, or like it's interpreted as an attack like on patriarchy or something, just because yeah. we're sharing our stories, just because we have our own space, we need our own space. So, um, but yeah, thank you for sharing that because, um, you know, as we move forward with, uh, you know, the work that you're doing and also as Chicana Mother work, um, you know, it's again like, how do we strategize more on that collective level to like kind of counter these just really inaccurate kinds of attacks, really. Right. Um, what are strategies? Like, what should we do going forward kind of thing? Yeah, so, oh, so then the question that I had is, um, and I know you talk about this in, in your articles, but um, I have a question about, so what advice would you give other Chicana and women of color mothers um, on the tenure track with young children, specifically um, in STEM? What kind of advice? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think we have enough time. To <laughs> I would have to say that your culture is an asset. Your culture is something that, that brings with it, you know, this diverse perspective. And this, this, I think it's so important in this movement as well, because for me as a, as a Chicana, and again, everybody's different, but for me, that means many things. Um, you know, advocating for, for social justice, particularly for our communities. But for me, it also talks a lot, it speaks to me about family. That family, you know, family's important to us all, but there's something almost like religious about being with your family and supporting your family, you know, the familia, right? I, I don't know how to, how to articulate it. And I think that's really because of that, that that's really driven me to speak out about uh, providing what we need for, for working women and particularly working mothers who can still maintain, allowing us to still maintain that passion and love, that fierce love for our family um, and that be okay that we should be able to spend as, as much time as we can with them. So I guess what advice I have to say is that I hope that, that that will be, that that will be embraced that, that cultures, your culture, whether you're Chicana or identify as, as something different, that that's an important who, part of who you are and don't let right now the color of the white color of academia discourage you or change you or you know make you feel like you have to code switch because uh, you know that's not good for anybody especially you however having said that that i completely understand i've had students tell me before you know, but I don't want to be judged. I don't want to have that bias. I'm not, I'm going to work hard to speak without my accent. I'm not going to, you know, wear particular clothing or do particular things because I want to feel, I want people to be more accepting of me in this field. And I, I don't have the answer for that yet. I don't have the answer except that I am running my lab 
in a way that I want to see the world. I want to be accepting. I want to show others how to be accepting. And that's, I'm trying to be part of the change in that way. So I, this is to go with the kind of the first part of your statement. This is the advice I have for us as we go forward. I want to call out all the mentors out there, all the, the women and men, especially you men, with, with tenure, with security. We need allies right now because these students, these undergraduates, graduate students, you know, postdocs, and young faculty mem mentor members, um, we're, we're not allowed to have a voice really in some of these regards without risking career retribution. It is the responsibility of those that are more privileged in their positions to speak, to listen, to listen to what the needs are of the students, of the postdocs, of the young faculty. Because you have, all, I have all these these professors that sometimes will tell me, oh, you know, I'm I'm a really big advocate or supporter, or champion of women in science, of people of color in science. Uh, but they've never really talked to somebody about what they, the people, the women in science, the people of color in science truly need. They just have it in their own head what is what will bring make an equal environment and don't have this idea of it's not about equal, right? It, it's about um, creating an, a fair environment. Uh, that's, that's what's important. So that's my advice to the community as we go forward. If you have privilege, use it. Exactly. Yes. So, yeah, we just we've all had um, our share of uh, difficult experiences, and what could have made a difference, or what has made a difference for you, is having those people with power who have been able to um, to help you succeed. And Hopefully some in the future at some point that will happen for, um, you know, any mother, any mother of color in any workspace. Um, Christine, did you want to ask the last question? I think we're good, but I mean, okay, let me, let me ask. <laughs> Just because we have you here. And, um, I guess some I guess some one of my, my my questions and my curiosity is like what are some of the things you want to share with the audience on behalf of yourself and the other mother scientists that you weren't able to include in your publication oh uh, do you mean I'm not sure what you, you you want me to speak for the other mothers in science that aren't on the publication? I'm sorry, I didn't understand your question. Oh, um, just some of the things that you weren't able to include or all of you weren't able to include in the publication since I think sometimes they limit our, uh, the, the space or the character characters or um, length of a publication. I was just curious if there's anything that you wish oh, sure. needed into the publication. I understand, sorry. Um, I think I would have loved to include even more people. I just couldn't physically manage it. <laughs> so it would have been great to put a call out on social media or, or to different universities in general because there are so many more perspectives that I would have liked to include, like undergraduate. So that's, that's one thing, if I could do anything. And then a second thing, I guess with the paper, we, we said what we wanted to say, and we said it as concisely as we could. But if you know, we had all the space in the world to go on, a lot of women, when they were editing the paper, were putting in you know, a lot of personal experiences and really going on and on about why caring about this one important thing. So for example, making sure there's an anti-harassment policy for women that are breastfeeding in public. Because who, who hasn't breastfed in public and had some, you know, old guy or woman come and look disapprovingly at you, if not say something, you know, terrible to you. So at, you know, we now are seeing all these sexual harassment policies, thankfully, um, uh, being being written up at conferences and and basically showing that the society cares about this and if you if someone misbehaves hopefully they're kicked out of the society or there's some kind of um, you know consequence for that action so you know having an anti-harassment policy for a woman who brings a newborn in and and is breastfeeding them in the front row of a presentation no one should ask them to leave 
you know, no one should, should make them feel bad for doing that. So there is a lot of, a lot of talk, a lot of writing about that's just one example, but we cut it down to basically one sentence because it was more, we felt it was more powerful to, to keep it really to the point. So obviously there was a lot of pain, a lot of emotion, a lot of thought that would have made this quadruple in size, but we, we kept it as, as short as we could. So more people would read it. <laughs> um, okay, so I think, I think we're gonna wrap it up. And I mean, I think this conversation is so pertinent given even yesterday, right? Didn't the Duckmaster, the lawmaker, the Senate make a vote bringing her, while bringing her nursing baby or like her newborn baby to the Senate floor. Um, oh, I heard about that. Yeah, I haven't caught up on that. That's great. Yes, yes, yes. So, I mean, you know, so these conversations, I think, are changing a culture. And I'd like to be like you, uh, Dr. Callacy and Rebecca, if I may, that we need to think about like the positive. Like, what can we, how can we not just be, you know, critiquing but building two alternatives so um thank you so much for being on our podcast uh, we look forward to continued collaboration with you and and then just keep hearing more about how you're doing and you know and what else we can think about for the future thank you thank you so much yeah we appreciate your time and um we can't wait to share this interview with all of our listeners and uh, to keep the movement going absolutely that's right. Let's do it. Si se puede. Bye. Okay, bye. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Bye, bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you.